This is a Federal News Network podcast. Climate and climate research has become a top priority for a large number of federal agencies and labs over the past few years. My next guest has been at the center of this research for many years in successive jobs at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Recently, she became a senior NOAA advisor for climate and also a presidential rank award winner. For the final interview in our series of PRA recipients, Co Barrett joins me now. Ms. Barrett, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be here. And just give us a sense of who you are. Are you a climate scientist? Are you a research expert? Are you a manager? What are you? Oh, my goodness. What a question. I wouldn't call myself a climate researcher, but I have spent my entire career in the climate space, most recently overseeing climate science and previously kind of working in the climate policy arena. Got it. And besides your work at NOAA directly, you also have an interagency chairmanship on climate. And tell us about that one. I do. It's an intergovernmental chairmanship, Tom. You may be aware that there is an intergovernmental panel on climate change, which has been stood up under the UN. It's been in place for over 30 years, and it's really the preeminent climate body for assessing on a periodic basis the state of the climate system. And so in 2015, I was elected as one of the first women vice chairs of that organization. You're the top U.S. representative there. Yes, I'm the only U.S. representative on the kind of executive team for that organization. All right. And at NOAA, as senior climate advisor, then, you have to, sounds like, bridge a gap, the interaction between what's going on with the various laboratories and researchers and those that are going to make policy. So how does that work? Well, first, you know, I'm just so honored to be the first person to be in this newly created position as senior advisor for climate at NOAA. The job is both inward facing and outward facing. The inward part, which I'm really loving these days, Tom, is just working across all of the parts of NOAA to craft a comprehensive and collaborative climate strategy. So, you know, NOAA has been in place for over 50 years. We are at our core a climate service. We have the weather service. People are very familiar with that aspect of NOAA's work. But we also have a fishery service, an ocean service, and a research line that I recently came out of. And, you know, the climate issue touches all of those areas, right? Fish are moving to colder waters towards the poles. That affects the fisheries mission. The weather and climate nexus in terms of extreme events, that's just central to so much of what we do. And also increasingly the ocean, which you know, absorbs so much heat and greenhouse gas emissions is key to the climate equation as well. So I'm getting a chance to work across all these lines with fabulous scientists and experts to kind of create a comprehensive approach. So that's the internal part. Then, of course, this time in federal government is probably the best time in a generation to be working on an issue like climate. There's more attention to this issue than ever before. And there's so much interagency work going on. You referenced this earlier. You know, we have working groups across government looking at important climate impacts like drought and flood and coastal protection, wildfires, which were so fierce this summer for us. So we're kind of working across many agencies to just bring our approaches together and try to achieve some significant goals together. And the researchers at NOAA then come up with research products that you can look at and access. Tell us what a research product looks like. 
Oh my goodness, there's so many examples to choose from. But what I'll say for your listeners who may not know, you know, what NOAA is, we sit within the Department of Commerce. We are an agency that is basically the Department of Data. We have so much climate information going back, you know, to Jeffersonian times, honestly. But, you know, we have observations from satellites and on the ground. We have researchers who are some of the best climate modelers on the planet. And then we have all kinds of research that's underway to serve the mission areas that I spoke of before. A good example, we've been monitoring greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere for a long time, and we can actually start to track where those emissions come from so that we could help to determine whether the country is meeting its greenhouse gas emissions reductions goals. Simple example, but you know, maybe something that's sure. accessible for your listeners. Well, in other words, a lot of data sets a lot of measurement that's resulting in data sets that can be used either within NOAA or by anyone who wants to subscribe to that data. Exactly. And also importantly, we do a lot of our research in collaboration with our partners or people who use the data so that we don't just produce the data and throw it over the transom. We really work with people to understand how they best need to have research so they can make their decisions properly. And that helps to inform the way that we go back then and maybe adjust our research to be responsive to the way that communities or the private sector need information. We're speaking with Co Barrett. She's Senior Advisor for Climate at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and a recent recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. And the Presidential Rank Award came, I believe, from your work as running the Programs and Administration Office at NOAA, which you have left. But what did you do there? Because not a very descriptive title for an office. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. You know, sometimes our titles within the federal government are not understandable to the average citizen. But you're right. So my presidential rank award was for both the work that I've been doing on climate internationally, but also for helping to run the research arm of NOAA. So in that job, I was kind of, you know, part of the leadership team for the research line. And I had oh, such a great, diverse range of research issues under my purview. So climate research, which is kind of my bread and butter, but also ocean exploration. People may not be aware that we have the mandate to explore the ocean, and we are still discovering new species every month, every year. So that was under my portfolio. Weather research, ocean observations, which are so key to helping us to understand the weather and also the long-term climate. Also, I was so privileged to have the Sea Grant program under my portfolio. People may be aware of the land-grant colleges because they've been in place for a long time. We have Sea Grant colleges and consortia that work on coastal issues and in the coasts hand-in-hand -hand with NOAA. So that was kind of my portfolio there. I'm a little sad to leave it behind, but climate is such a big job right now. It is really absorbing all my time and energy. And did I read correctly that you shared in a Nobel Peace Prize? Yes. Well, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. We shared it with then Vice President Al Gore for climate work across the globe and in the country. All right. And besides associating with Al Gore, you have associated with the great Louis Uccellini of the Weather Service. So that, that's, that's quite a feather, too. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, Louis just retired. It's such a big hole in our leadership team. 
Yeah, what a fabulous leader and such a visionary for our weather service. We and he him. was a great exit interview, too, here on the show. So you're, you're joining some of the greats in being with us today. And just briefly, you're a longtime federal career civil servant. And what got you into federal service in the first place? Oh, my goodness. That's a really great question. I started you know, working as a contractor to the federal government at that time for the U.S. Agency for International Development. And it was really clear to me that working as a civil servant was a good fit for what I wanted to do. You know, I like trying to figure out a way for the federal government to solve problems from the unique perspective that we have. And, you know, it's uh, working with contractors, with grantees, with the private sector to kind of do the things that are inherently federal. At NOAA, for example, we do core observations and we've maintained some of those series for over 50 years. That's really important if you're hoping to kind of respond to a long-term trend and inspire, say, the private sector or other grant recipients, et cetera, to extend that work and to take it in meaningful ways. So it was always a great fit. The minute I saw that as an opportunity, I was grateful to be able to apply for a position and join the federal government. Co Barrett is Senior Advisor for Climate at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Very happy to be with you, Tom. Thanks for showing your interest in the issue of climate and also in the award recipients. And again, she is a recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.